What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Hi there, it's Paul, and you're listening to What the Footy, the football business podcast that goes behind the scenes and gives fans, industry experts, athletes, aspiring sports professionals, and more unrivaled insight into football, business, and how the beautiful game is evolving. Here is what I have lined up for you today. People often make big mistakes with football. You cannot bring Man United to Oxford United. You cannot bring Inter Milan to Oxford United. It's, It's just impossible. So what you have to do is do your research, understand what the revenues of the club are, understand how it works, what the structure is, what its history is, what its culture's like. You know, history you can't change, culture you can. I hope you love it. Not like it, I hope you love it. So if you're locked in and listening, give the pod a follow and a five-star review and tell a friend to tell a friend. Let's go! I knew Sam Allardyce liked me, but I didn't know it was to that Imagine extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school, now it's a putting off. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that, but then also they need to be represented the right Sport way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Yeah, so Let's just win this to appease the fan. Tim, finally great to, to have you on the What The Footy podcast after all, all of these years. It's been, it's been a while, Paul. It's good to be here. And uh, thanks for your uh, ongoing perseverance to get me. <laughs> no, I'm thank, thankful and grateful for your time, Tim, and inviting me down to the training ground. I saw Liam there as well, and I can already see the culture, culture yeah. and the training ground and, and within the football club. The first question I always ask all the guests is, what is football to you, a business or a sport, and why? So... It, it it's it's both and it and it has to be and the the reality is is that at this level even at you know i say even at league 1 level actually i tell her at league 1 level because you know we are still a very large very well known very well respected football club in league 1 with with hopefully a lot of ambition to go further but you can't run a multi-million pound business, which is what we are, yep. without thinking of business as well as sport. You know, of course, you've got to make sure that you understand the sport. You've got to be delivering on the pitch. You've got to make sure that you are understanding what it means to be a sport and the passion of the sport and, and, and how you approach it and the excellence and the professionalism that needs to be around it. Yep. But you, you cannot ignore the fact that we are a business and you know love it or loathe it we need to make revenues we need to control costs in order to make sure that we invest properly on the pitch we need to make sure we invest properly in our new stadium in our training ground and so everything that we do requires tragically a load of money to do it and if you don't run it as a business you'll leak cost you won't take advantage of revenue. You won't actually put the right business and professional processes in place to get the right players. You know, so it, the two are completely indistinguishable to me. You know, we are a sports organisation. We're also a media organisation. We're a broadcaster. We're a sponsorship organisation and we're a brand. And therefore, we're a business. And I love how you mentioned brand because obviously 
some of your early experiences when football was working at Manchester United as group financial control and then at C as a CFO at Inter Milan. Just sort of talk to me about the learnings and experiences that you gained from being at, at those two organisations, which aren't just football clubs, which, are, which yeah. are, gl are globally renowned brands. Yeah, I mean, you know, joining Man United in 2009, as I did, you know, it, it, it was already an immense brand when I joined and it went from strength to strength. <laughs> Not because of me, but, you know, in that period, really from 2009 to 2015, which is a period of time I was there. And, you know, what does the brand give you? It gives you reach. It gives you that global platform. And there's no secret the reason why Man United at the time had the biggest sponsorship revenue and the biggest global media presence is because they were such a huge brand. Inter Milan, when I joined there, was probably in a real transition phase. And it was actually a really interesting time to be there because, you know, we were part of a new management team. We were part of a new ownership group. And it was a I mean, it was an incredibly exciting time to be there. But we we would I wouldn't say we were starting from the ground up because obviously the club had an immense history. But I don't think what it had done is capitalised on that history and it had not capitalised on the brand. But from a learning point of view, actually, I'd learned an enormous amount at Inter. Because it was probably the first time I'd had that sort of CFO position, yeah. the really sort of part of that senior management team. But actually what's really interesting is that from a branding perspective, I remember looking, and we all learn, and you've got to learn from your mistakes, and you've got to learn from things that you potentially get wrong. You know, so that's what makes you a better professional overall. I remember I saw the budget for the rebrand of the Inter Milan crest okay. which I can't remember exactly when we did it it must have been about 2019 and I remember saying to the marketing director at the time I was like but this is ridiculous it was like literally it was millions of pounds yeah you know but they were a huge club I mean we had revenues at the time of 250 300 million so you know that was not a huge amount of money on that basis but I said like why are you doing it what's the point and I was like quite cynical about it yeah and then you actually look at how important that rebrand of the crest and that rebrand has been to Inter Milan yeah. I kind of think yeah I get it now you know it was very easy for me as a you know in there as a CFO to just think of the numbers yeah, please, yeah. just to think but that's just ridiculous how can you spend that much money on a crest and then you think you know what in hindsight completely get why they did what they did because what it did very importantly it was it defined what the club was about. It actually defined the values of the club. You know, there was a an, an, you know media campaign at the time, which was, um, you know, again, you know, a little controversial at the time, but it was like something like, you know, Inter Milan, you know, hashtag not for everyone. Yeah. And it was quite an edgy thing to do, but it was basically saying, look, you know, we're not going to be for everyone. You know, there are going to be those of you who are going to go off and support Juventus, and there are going to be those of you who are going to support Roma or Juventus uh, or AC Milan or whatever. But so we're not for everyone. It's a really honest assessment of who we are. But I think what it said was, you know what? You've got to make a conscious decision if you want to support us. Yeah. And then you're going to stay with us. And I really liked that overall philosophy because it set that culture. It gave it a real reason for people to sort of stick with that club through thick and thin. Yeah. And that's what's so important about football is that it is not you know, a 
constant stream of winning and success. Unless you support Man City. Unless you support Man City. <laughs> but even then, you know, I've got so many friends who are City fans who say, yeah. oh, when I was you know, back in the day, yeah. I remember playing Gillingham in the playoff final back in 2000 and whenever it was. Yeah. You know, football will always be that level of volatility. Yeah. I was only saying to somebody earlier today that my time at Manchester United, you know, we had incredible success even in those last sort of three or four years of, of, of Alex Ferguson. And what, what was important there was that I said, if you cast your timeline far enough ahead, you're going to have a rubbish season. Mm. And, you know, come Sir Alex going and that period of time following that, it was incredibly volatile. And you need to accept that because that's sport. Yeah. Sport is not this kind of dull, constant stream of success. Even within a season, even the best clubs are going to lose games. Yeah, and you, you can't get away from that. What you've got to do is make sure that your fans stick with you through that yeah. and that actually the club doesn't react to every loss by you know, dragging its chin on the floor and you, you've got to stick with, your, stick with your plan, stick with your philosophy and stick with what you're going to do because it's not all going to be plain sailing. Yeah, and then going into culture and defining the football club, how would you define the culture and, and, and the vision here at Oxford United and why did you get involved in the club when you joined in 2022? I, I mean, I got involved in the club because, um, you know, I'm, I know the ownership group. Yeah. I've worked with them before and I respect them hugely. I know that they're in it because they love the sport. I know they're in it because they love the game. And I know they're in it because they see the potential in this club. Yeah. You know, we are, I think, a, this club has been... Possibly, uh, I don't think it's harsh to say, guilty of underperforming over the years. Would you say sleep, sleeping giant? I'm not sure I'd say sleeping giant necessarily. I just think there's a huge amount of potential here. You know, you look at this objectively, what Oxford United have. You know, we are in a globally famous city. Sadly, we're not globally famous for the football <laughs> club. But we're in a city that everybody around the world will have heard of Oxford. Yeah. And there's probably only three or four, five, maybe six cities in the UK that are globally famous. Mm. We've, we are one of them. And there's a massive potential there for that level of recognition. Yeah. And I don't think that's been capitalised upon over the years. I think secondly, you know, we are the only professional sporting organisation in the whole of Oxfordshire. Mm. And that, again... That can be a double-edged sword because it means there's not an enormous amount of competition. And I think that's possibly been the problem, mm. that we've probably gone, you know, good enough is good enough. We're all right. We just do what we do. I think sometimes clubs get this kind of culture of, you know, we're always the kind of the perennial also-rans. And that's what I don't want us to be. Yeah. You know, I want to make sure that philosophically we are in the right position to do the best we possibly can. And one of the key aspects for me, I don't, you know, I don't expect Oxford United in the next 10 years to be troubling the Champions League, yeah. you know, because that's just a ridiculous aspiration. But what is a sensible aspiration for us is to be the best club that we can be. Yeah. You know, I've said this to the staff here, I've said it many, many times. I want us to be the best run football club in the Football League. What does that mean? For me, it means that I don't, want to, don't want, want to necessarily be the richest. It may be that we're not the most successful. Yeah. But what it means is that every touch point with the club has to be excellent. Whether that's going to a match, whether that's an interaction with the players, 
whether that's visiting the training ground, whether it's visiting the stadium. And again, the huge opportunity of the new stadium is, is just, it's breathtaking. Yeah. But every interaction that everybody has, I want people to walk away and go, that is such a well-run club. And we've not been there before, if I'm being very, very honest. Yeah. I think there's been a culture sometimes of good enough is good enough. Perhaps a culture of, oh, that'll do. And somebody said to me a while ago, a really phrase that's really stuck in my mind, which is about standards. And I think what we want to do here and working with Liam, and I know Liam Manning shares that philosophy as well so strongly, as do the ownership, thankfully, which is you constantly need to strive for excellence. You're only ever as good as what you did the day before. Yeah. You can never rest on your laurels. And standards are something that is really important. You know, and as I say, somebody said to me recently, the standards you walk past are the standards you accept. Yeah. And it's about making sure that you are constantly looking and checking and balancing, whether it's on the pitch, whether it's at the training ground, whether it's, you know, a simple matter of just you know, walking past some litter in the car park. I mean, I know that sounds really crass, but yeah. it, it's making everybody think everything has to be reflective of what we are, which is a professional sports club with some seriously elite talent in this building. Yeah. And I think we need to demonstrate that better. No, 100%. And speaking about objective, obviously I've, I've heard about this, the ambition to be a top 30 club in England, what are the sort of strategies behind the scenes that you're working on that is going to, to bring the club to obviously the stadium ambition and the plans there are, are, are going to obviously drag the club there as well. But what other things are you sort of looking at to, in order to reach? I, I actually think, again, it goes back to what I've just said, which is about excellence and standards. Yeah. And it's making sure we've got the right people in the building who share that vision, who share the mentality of, of what it takes to be better every single day. Yeah. To never actually look at the day before and say, yeah, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. It, everything matters. So it's making sure we've got the right team in place to, to make that happen. I think we've got some really excellent people in this building and they're, they're you know, too numerous to name. Um, and, you know, if I name them all, I'll miss somebody out. Yeah. So who will be really unfortunate, but... What we have is, as the one I will name is, is Liam Manning, who you know, we only hired him in March this year. And already he is showing the, the vision and the attention to detail and the excellence that we were always looking for. And, and so I think that's about getting the right people in the right positions. Yeah. And, and actually, look, I was only thinking about this the other day, that you know, CEOs of football clubs come from a variety of different backgrounds. Some of us are from a corporate or a finance background, others are from a football, others have been football agents, others are from commercial backgrounds. What you have to do is make sure that the team around you plugs the gaps. The key thing from me is that, you know, I know what I know, but more importantly, I know what I don't know. And I think if you can approach it in that way, being really humble about what it is that you don't know and be very honest with yourself and make sure that the people you have around you can compensate for that. What you then have is a team that is really, really tightly knit, gets each other and can actually move it forward in the right way. So that's my strategy in the, in the kind of the day-to-day -day operational sense is to make sure you've got a team of people who actually collectively know everything or know as much as they're ever going to know. 
I think in terms of the overall ambition for the club, the top 30 ambition, it's, it's an ambition which I think is, is perhaps a little misunderstood at times because the reality is Man United are a top 30 club. <laughs> Arsenal are a top 30 club. Man City are a top 30 club. What we're actually saying with that is, is twofold. One is, again, we want to behave as though we are a club that is in the top 30 of the English football system. That includes the 20 Premier League clubs and includes a further 10 Football League clubs. It means, going back to what I've said before, I want us to be the best-run football club in the Football League. And that's part of it. I think, secondly, it means that we are... Ideally, you know, top 30 is obviously means championship. And that that is an ambition we have to get promoted, not in record time, but get promoted in a strategic and sustainable way and that leads me on to the next point which is sustainability you know we need to be a football club that is not a constant drain on shareholder funding it's a football club that actually sustains itself financially which means growing revenues it means controlling costs it means owning our own stadium and it means growing the brand and the reach of the club to such an extent that we can achieve that you know, there are football clubs out there that, you know, regularly, even in League One, get twenty to 30,000 people going to their stadiums. Yeah. You know, I, we, were, we played at Derby County a few weeks ago. You know, beautiful stadium, you know, 20-odd thousand people there. You know, we don't have a beautiful stadium. We don't have control of our stadium. What that means is that our average gate is, is lower than it really needs to be and it really should be. You know, our average gate at the moment is probably like eight and a half, nine thousand 9,000 people. Just think of the extra revenues if we were getting twenty to 30,000 people. We're not because the stadium size isn't going to be that big, but I just say that to illustrate the point that with more people coming to watch us in a new stadium, you immediately generate the revenues that you can then reinvest on the pitch. Yeah. And that's all, that's what it's all about. Again... it's really easy to get criticised for banging on about increasing your revenues. There's only one reason I want to increase revenues of this football club, because I want want to invest it on the pitch. There's no other reason. That's why we're doing it. And I think sometimes that's lost on people, because obviously you have the the financial sustainability rules, whereby obviously you can only spend 60% of your turnover, Mm. then the teams that drop down from the championship, there's 75%. Just sort of talk to me of the challenges that brings, and obviously... And, and that links to the point you just mentioned there about that pressure to obviously increase in revenue in order to generate more to spend. Look, I think whichever, whichever measure of financial sustainability you look at, there are always going to be clubs who will do okay out of it simply because they've got you know, a large stadium with a pretty successful history, a strong, band, a strong brand and a strong fan base. Yeah. Uh, you know, and again, I... I Use a similar examples, you know, Ipswich Town's a good example, Bolton, Derby. But then there are other clubs who have total control of their stadium, yeah. you know, and we don't. And that costs us immensely. You know, compared to, say, a Plymouth, we probably generate three to four million pounds less revenue than we should do. Yeah. Because simply, we can't use our stadium outside of match days. And even on a match day, our ability to generate kind of non-ticketing revenues is so severely curtailed that we are at such a disadvantage from from that, which is why 
getting a new stadium for us is, is so critically important. So even within the confines of financial sustainability rules, there are winners and there are losers because of the, in, the, the, the sort of nuances around the structure. And so, uh, you know, my issue really isn't around, you know, isn't around what the rules are and what the rules are, whether it's 60%, 75%. There are going to be inequalities, whether you're within the same league or whether you've got people coming up from the National League who are not subject to the same rules or people coming down from Premier League to Championship and below. Because one way or another, there is inequality. We are not all on the same playing field. That's just a fact. It's, and, and actually, we shouldn't be. You know, otherwise, we become you know, a closed league system like you have in the US where people pay half a billion quid to get a franchise and it becomes a little bit sterile. Yeah. You know, the reality is, is that we want to see a Luton town yeah. go from League Two to the Premier League. You know, it's, inc- it's an incredible story. And it doesn't happen all the time. We want to see a Brentford happen or a Brighton happen. And there are subtle reasons why that happens, which I won't go into. But, you know, what I want to see is what I want to see is clubs embrace their differences, embrace that bit of inequality. Because the great thing about the English system is that clubs can do a Luton. And it's brilliant to see, you know, they do it with a quirky little stadium that I know is kind of going through a lot of change at the moment but it it shows it can be done but it's got to be done with a vision and it's got to be done with a philosophy that you stick to and it's got to be done with consistency you can't have that volatility of approach that a lot of football clubs have where they just throw everything on success and then when it doesn't happen it's kind of wheels fall off we we're not like that and we the philosophy and the the strategy of this club is not to be like that. It's to make sure that when we go to the championship, we're actually ready for it. And we've built the structure around the club to make that work and make it happen. Be that on the managerial side, be it in the sports performance side, be it on nutrition, or be it in the corporate business marketing branding side. We've got to be ready for championship football when it happens. Yeah. And, and just sort of speaking about those departments, obviously, you know, whether that's Liam's side of the first team, whether that's obviously Ed with the recruitment, some of the different functions that you mentioned there. When you came in, how much time did you sort of dedicate to that audit period of listening and learning and finding out from the different people, the, the different things that were effectively in the building before you, before you fully stepped in there? You've, you've got to do it. In, it's, a, it's, it's strange coming into the club when, you know, we were very new to it. And as well, the season had already yeah. started and we've not had the best start to the season. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the hardest thing. And, and yeah. you know, a year in, you look back at yourself a year ago and think, oh God, I can't believe I said that or I can't believe I did that. Or the one thing that was really important to me though was not to come in as Tim Williams from Man United yeah. or Tim Williams from Inter Milan, but to come in as Tim Williams with a vision, with a plan for Oxford United. To, you know, I think people often make big mistakes with football. You cannot bring Man United to Oxford United. You cannot bring Inter Milan to Oxford United. It's, it's just impossible. So what you have to do is do your research, understand what the revenues of the club are, understand how it works, what the structure is, what its history is, what its culture's like. You know, 
History you can't change, culture you can. And I think there was, going back to what I was saying, I think there was a, a culture here where I think we kind of knew what we wanted to be, but I'm not sure we quite knew how to get there. I think, I think there was a little bit of fear of making difficult decisions. Yeah. And until you get a critical mass of people around who are prepared to make those difficult decisions, it becomes very difficult because you're just an outlier. You're just the guy who says things that is, yeah, but, you know, of course you'd say that because. Whereas if you, the more people who come into the building who share that vision and philosophy, that gets to a tipping point. And, you know, Liam Manning is a significant part of that tipping point where he will say, no, 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 that's not right. I want this to happen. I want that to happen. Part of my job is to lead the club. Part of my job is to support what Liam wants to do on the pitch. And we do as much as we can to be able to make that happen. We're very lucky with this club. We've got a brilliant ownership group, a fantastic chairman in Grant Ferguson who shares that philosophy. And I'm lucky enough to have worked with Grant for, for a number of years. And I think having a number of people around the building who speak the same language and share that philosophy and more importantly, want to look forward, too much rearview mirror. We need to keep going forward. You know, the reality is with football, you know, we play 46 times a year. We've got 46 times a year to get it right. And if you're thinking about the home match experience, you've got 23 times to get it right. That's not a lot. That is not a lot of margin for error. What that means is that you, you are only ever as good as your last match. And you can never go, well, yeah, that didn't work out, but, but why not? You've got to forensically understand it before the next one. Yeah. And, so, and you need to apply that across the entire business. You know, you're only ever as good as your last marketing campaign. The finance team are only ever as good as their last monthly report. You have got to continue to look and improve. And it's no shame to say, well, I didn't do that as well last month. I've got to do better this month. Yeah. It goes back to what I just said. You know, some of the things that I said when I first joined this club a year ago kind of make me cringe a little bit now. But you've kind of got to go through that, but you've got to be very honest with yourself at the end to go, yeah, maybe I could have done better and I will learn. But you want people around you who actually help you learn. I don't know everything. Far from it. I want to be surrounded by people who A, know more than me and B, can make the entire club sing and dance. And, and even just boiling than that, what would you say is, is the biggest challenge of the role and, and being a CEO in the EFL? Quite a few people who I speak to, they mention that whole idea of having to more or less run two business plans if you're in League Two, running that National League business plan, running that League Two business plan. But would you say is the sort of biggest, biggest sort of challenge in the role? Do you know, I think there's two things on that, on the, on the challenges. One is that you've got to know who you are yeah. and you've got to know who you are as the chief exec of the club. Yeah. And I think, if I'm being honest, one of the mistakes I made was, and I will be honest, and I will, I will open up to that mistake. One of the first things I said when I joined the club was that I didn't want to be kind of all over the media. Yeah. Um, and I quickly found myself, like, inadvertently all over the media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you start, to, you start to kind of look at this stuff and you start to kind of think, and it starts to affect you really badly. Yeah. 
you know, particularly the, the period of time probably between January and April this year, where we went through a terrible time. You know, we didn't win a game from the 21st of January to the 25th of April. Yeah. That was a dreadful time. I mean, it was probably the most, one of the most challenging times of my entire career. Yeah. And you've got to try and stay thick-skinned and resilient. Yeah. I think that's been the hardest thing, is to actually think, am I doing things right? Have I got the support of the board and the chairman? Is the football club around me moving in the right direction? Yes or no? What do I need to change? What do I need to pivot? What decisions do I need to make now? But you've got to do that from very much within the club. Because the reality is, is football is... the, the. the reason why football is the best sport in the world is because it's incredibly simple. Yeah. You know, it, 22 blokes kick a ball around a field. But it is, it's simplicity that makes it so complex. And it means that when I have a game and there's 9,000 people in the stadium, there are 9,000 people who have got a very, very clear opinion about what's going on. And that's brilliant. That's what I love about it because it's, that's why I love sport. Sorry, that's why I love football over rugby union for example because football is simple it's easy to understand and i love it for it but it means that everybody's got an opinion on how you're doing how you're not doing what you should be doing who you should be buying you've got to stick to your philosophy you've got to stick to your kind of strategy and you've got to try and get through that that's the hardest thing is is trying to block out the noise noise. good point that's a really good expression block it out And think, am I doing the right thing internally? Do I need to speak to these people? How can I, how can I do better? But not, not, get, not take it personally. Yeah. And that was hard. Yeah. I think one of the things that, from a CEO point of view, I've, done, I've, I've probably done better for myself is actually probably to be a bit kinder to myself yeah. and to not take things so personally. And if the team loses, not to take it so personally. Because frankly, you know, if you've got the right strategy, the right philosophy, yeah. you, know, you are going to lose games. You're going to win games that you don't expect to win. You're going to lose games that you don't expect to lose. And you've got to be resilient enough to get through it. So resilience is absolutely key. Somebody said to me when I first joined that you need thick skin as a football CEO. Yeah. And goodness me, they were right. Yes, yeah, it's, it's so funny you mention that because quite, quite a few people that I speak to when I ask them that question, they always say a similar thing about blocking out the noise and, and having belief in the strategy and having the right people around you that are going to challenge you and push you and keep you, keep you on that kind of right path. And I think it's easier to say that a year into the job than at the start, yeah. because at the start, you're still developing your personality as a CEO. You're yeah. still developing your personality as you know, a leader in a business. And it mm-hmm. takes a long time to do that. And it means that you can't make rash decisions too quickly. Yeah. What it does mean is that by the time you're a year in or two years in, you know, that's when the hard work starts. That's when our ownership and our chairman are going to say, yeah, but Tim, what are you doing now? Yeah. How are you going to change this? How are you going to improve this? So actually, the start of my second season, I started with a lot of, I suppose, not nerves and trepidation, but it's like, right, this is my season now. (laughs) You know, this is the season where I'm going to be really judged. I ain't got any excuses now. You know, I've overseen what I think is a brilliant transfer window. We've got some brilliant people in the building. But fundamentally, this is the season that I'm going to judge myself on as well. Yeah. 
And I think even just circling back to that point about media, I think it is important that sort of communicating and sharing that with the fans. But as you sort of mentioned, there's a way to do it in a way whereby it's it's kind of dealt with in a good way. So, for example, like I, I watched on YouTube your sort of eight-minute thing that you did mm. towards April, the end of the season, like doing stuff like that a couple of times a season here and there is, is good to... It, for me, yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's better to do that yeah. than to be constantly... Because yeah. it's, there's too much expectation yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. There's too much expectation that you're going to be there. And what happens yeah. when things go badly is that if you don't say anything, then you just get accused of hiding. Yeah, yeah. And I don't ever want to be accused of that either. Yeah. You know, I want to, it's got to be done in the right way. Sometimes you want to go, I, I, do, I do care that we're losing. It's like, yeah. it's like don't, don't think that I don't, I don't give a damn about this, because I do, but yeah. you can say too much. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You know, and I think it's about, it's more important what you don't say than what you do say, I think. Um, no, 100%. Just some wider sort of football business questions. Go on, yes. So, Tim, just sort of talk to me about, obviously, across your career, we've seen club valuations change and shift over time. We've seen different sort of ownership models come in, more sort of multi-club ownership models, more consortium-based models. What's your thought on this more generally? And also, we're seeing a lot more of it in the EFL. What sort of challenges does, it, does this sort of bring, do you think? I... I'd like to think and I'd like to hope that it gives a bit more opportunity rather than challenge, actually. Yeah. You know, the multi-club model is, is an interesting one. I, I think the Man City model yeah. is, a, is, is very interesting because what you have with the Man City model, with the greatest respect to the clubs that in that model that aren't Man City, yeah. but you've got one enormous club and then a group of smaller clubs. Yeah. And I think that's where it can work extremely well. I am more nervous of the multi-ownership models where you have, you know, probably half a dozen clubs of a similar size because I think the, the synergies, are, I think they're less obvious. Yeah. I also think the drain on management time when you have six football clubs, all of which are the same size, yeah. must be incredible. I mean, you know, it is a very time-consuming thing to run a football club. And so to multiply that by six is is just immense. So I think it's important that these organisations actually put the right structures in place and have the right people on the ground running the football club. And more importantly, allow that club to have its personality, to be who it is and not to form this kind of homogenous group of clubs that actually just look the same. I think that's, you know, at the heart of football is fans and communities and I think if you if you go into a multi-club model knowing that and respecting it and driving it, then I think you will do okay. I think if you try and make this kind of, as I say, almost like a franchise model, I think yeah. it's dangerous. I think the other thing, though, that I think it gives, and you talk about valuations, and is it's very easy in football to look at valuations at the top level. Yep. You know, and we see, you know, some of the sort of in, in enormous valuations around, you know, Man United, Chelsea, etc. You know, that's a completely different ecosystem to what we operate here in League One. Yeah. And what you, I mean, I think we can benefit from the overall growth of football as a global sport. And I think English football clubs absolutely benefit and it's, you know, sometimes it's kind of interesting to say it because a lot of people think that the Premier League is kind of a bit of a pariah to smaller clubs. It can be, but it's in this context, 
It's not, because what the Premier League has done in the last 30 years is, is grow the English game immeasurably. So the quality of the English game is second to none, and we are lucky to have that. You know, League One football, as a quality kind of product, entertainment, sport, whichever way you want to call it, is so much better than its equivalent in other countries, without question. So what's happened with, with the Premier League and the increase in valuation and the money that's been given to English sport and English football because of the Premier League is incalculable. Now, from a smaller point, from a micro point, what does it mean to our valuations from a club perspective? It's really hard to say because yeah. when, when clubs change hands at this level, it tends to be under the radar a little bit. You know, my experience at Tifosi would suggest that a League One football club would change hands at any time between sort of 1.2 and 2.2 times its revenues. But there's so many subtleties within that. Which can be, do you own your stadium? Do you own your training ground? What's your size of gate? You know, so, you know, the one thing I will say is that this club, Oxford United, will be immeasurably better through owning its own stadium. Yeah. From a valuation point of view, from an ability to generate revenues point of view. So I think that's the critical thing for me, which is, you know, every club is so different, even more so at, at this level, what we have to do is make sure that we are, we know who we are, we know what we stand for, we support the community, we support the fans who come week in, week out and pay money to come and see us. And that's really how you get the value. You know, us, the value of our sort of community reach and our social reach is probably far greater than the value that this club could be changed hands for. And I think that's, you know, so value, value we always think of in monetary terms, yeah. but actually the value to our community for having this club in a new stadium, being able to benefit our women's team. So our women's team will be able to play all of their games in our new stadium. They cannot do that now. Yeah. That's crazy, but that's, that's just the way it is. The value of our, you know, outreach into our Oxford United, into the community through our sort of you know, kind of, sort of charitable connections. I also via our youth academy, you know, that creation of value that might not be in pound notes, but is in terms of our social value is immense. And that's where I think we need to be really focusing on. And yeah, that doesn't necessarily generate, you know, enormous amounts of money, but it gives us that sense that we're really giving value to the community. Yeah, because even, even linked to that, the reason why we still see a lot of NFL and US-based franchises valued so highly is because they capitalise on the real estate value that they have at the stadium. And even looking at your stadium plans, you're going to have a hotel there, Absolutely. a plaza there. So it's that American commercialised approach to, to the stuff in and around the stadium area, clubs like Man City are tapping into. Absolutely. And I think, and again, and this is about not just making revenues for ourselves, but it's yeah. about giving something to the community. Yeah. You know, what our new stadium plans will deliver is something that the community, community can enjoy 365 days a year. Yeah. You know, it will be a space which is you know, which will have community facilities, it will have outreach, you know, we're talking to a load of different organisations who we'll be working with 
to make that a proper hub for that local community. And I think, you know, when it's when it's there in a few years' time, yeah, you know, it will be it will be such a game changer for club, community, and county. It will be an incredible thing to see. And then speaking on quality of product, what's your views on the new EFL TV deal? I spoke to quite a few people. They believe that it's progressive, not radical. We're not ready for radical just yet. And then linked to that as well, your views on the 3pm blackout, which I'm personally t- totally against. But Right then. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So I think the broadcasting deal that yeah. they, the EFL negotiated for next season and beyond, I think is brilliant, yeah. actually. Um, I think when I heard about it, um, I I was genuinely shocked that they'd managed to do that. Mm. I think it's an absolutely superb deal. You know, there are there are nuances within the overall distribution mechanisms that are actually not part of that deal. Yeah. But what they've achieved in becoming a key partner with Sky and giving. The, the reach of live games and the number of live games and the platform that we will be able to show those games either online or offline is is superb. And so I think they've done a great job. I'm, I was hugely supportive, continue to be so. 3pm blackout. Look, I know it's a contentious issue. Um, I, look, when I was in Italy... There's no such thing as a 3pm blackout. All 380 games are televised. And I fully support that. Yeah. You know, because two things. You know, one is not every fan lives close to the stadium. Yeah. And so they have got absolutely no access to be able to watch a game, whether it's online or offline. I think, so, I, so on that basis, you know, I think domestic football needs to move on. I think we need to think more creatively about what we show on TV. And and I think part of that, I have to say, is I will be broadly supportive of removing the blackout. Yeah. But I also think from a revenue generation point of view, that what that means for us and what that would mean for us as a club is that we would have more visibility of our games on TV that means our sponsors have got more visibility. That means the digiboards, the LEDs, the scoreboards, etc., have got more visibility. But secondly, there's a really important point about this, yeah. which is if people have got a choice, if they live locally, if they've got a choice whether to go to the game or not, that means you've got to make the match day experience really great. Yeah. And that means you've got to put attention to that match day experience. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's absolutely the right way to be. You've got to think, you know, firstly, it's probably a very different audience in terms of who will come to the game or who won't. Yeah. And it is a different audience. Not everybody wants to come to a football match. But what we've got to do is we've got an opportunity on TV to showcase how great that can be. And so we can use that non-blackout 3pm game to say, look at this. This is, this is what you can do. This is how we can do it. And so why don't you come along? See for yourself. So it gives a much bigger showcase. And again, that's why I'm supportive of removing it. Yeah, I speak to a lot of American investors and they, they just can't get their head around it. Doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's like, why is that? Yeah. How can you do that? You know, Inter Milan, um, over the five years I was there, I think when I first joined, the average, 
I think the average attendance at Inter was like 30, 30 to 35,000 people a game, yeah. which in the San Siro is echoes and it's empty. By the time I left, our average attendance was nearer to 65,000. And that is with, you know, all domestic games being shown on live TV. TV yeah. You've just got to think differently. Yeah. And then also linked to that as well, what about if the Premier League as well removed their black hat as well? How do you think that would all coincide together? Because um, there's always been this argument that if you remove the free pin black hat in the Premier League, let's say, for example, you live in Oxford, but you maybe support Arsenal Man United, you're not going to go to maybe an Oxford United game and you'd stay at home and watch Saka and Grealish <laughs> come on TV. But I've always just been of the view that a lot more clubs in the EFL, most of their revenue is generated from commercial more than match day. There's probably a way for the Premier League to do a deal like they did over COVID, whereby an existing broadcaster can maybe buy more of those games and then from there you can distribute some of the, the revenue so I think, as well. Or... I think on that, what's important is that you stagger the Premier League games so that, yes, there are a number which are played at 3pm on a Saturday. Yeah. But I think I would be... My only concern there would be, I would be slightly nervous that if in doing so, yeah. everything reverted to 3pm on a Saturday. Yeah. Because actually... I genuinely quite like the the variability of you know a seven thirty p.m. Friday kickoff, yeah. a twelve thirty p.m. Saturday, a five p.m. Sunday. You know, I, I, you know, you mean, I, I, slot, yeah. I quite like the fact that football can be played at different times, yeah. and I don't have a problem with that. You know, I know when. Yeah, you know, a lot of, again, I think sometimes we can be very misty-eyed and nostalgic yeah, about yeah, the kind yeah. of, you know, 3 p.m. Saturday, you know, it's what we do, it's 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 it's, it's what football's done, yeah. all about. It that's we've got to move with the times. Yeah. You know, we can't sit still and think that, you know, because actually, you know, let's let's think about this logically. Yeah. There are certain people who can never go to 3 p.m. Saturday kickoffs. Mm. What if you work in retail? Yeah. True. What if you're a key worker? You know, what that variability does is it actually gives you reach to a completely different audience. So, again, I get the, you know, I get the 3 p.m. Saturday thing. It's, it's historical, it's English football, but it doesn't need to be. Things can change. You know, look at how cricket's changed, for example. You know, 30 years ago, nobody would have ever conceived of a 2020 being the spectacle that it is, but it is. Yeah. And so I do think that football needs to absolutely move with the times and move with kind of modern tastes, modern broadcasting. Um, and, you know, we need to, we need to be com- always be completely relevant to, you know, the fact that the demography of fans is changing. You know, not everybody is, you know, my age and wants to go to a 3pm kickoff. Yeah. One question I'm, I want to really ask you, that I, I, this year that I wanted to ask, because obviously your finance background experience, this whole thing with um, Todd Bowley, the amortisation, the longer term contract, obviously you're for talking about making it five years. I want to really understand, is it something that's never been tried before? Is it novel? Is it something... So, yes. do you know, it's interesting actually, because yeah. I got quite cross. I was listening to the radio a few, yeah. oh, good few months ago about this. And they had a guy, and I'm not going to name him, yeah. but this guy was talking about player amortisation. Yeah. And, and he called it on the radio, and it was on Radio 4. It wasn't, you know, like, it was a very credible news report. And he, he said, 
there's this accounting trickery called amortisation. Yeah. And immediately it set me on edge because it's not accounting trickery. It's just accounting. Yeah. <laughs> and it's correct accounting. The, the trick is the period. Yeah. Now, I, I think to anticipate that a player is going to be with a club for eight years and to give them an eight-year contract, if they're even allowed to give them an eight-year contract, I think that's edgy. Yeah. So I think there needs to be a recognition that realistically anything more than five years of amortisation of a player contract is, is probably... Ambitious. Yeah. Ambitious. It's, it, it's, it's probably stretching it a bit too far. Um, but you know I will say amortisation is just part of what happens to player contracts from an accounting point of view and it is just accounting what it suggests to me though is that from a financial fair play point of view and this is something I've said for years and having been through an FFP settlement agreement at Inter Milan that the reality is is that a football club is not going to be financially sustainable whether or whether it amortizes its player contracts by two years or by twenty two years, yeah. it fundamentally makes absolutely no difference yeah. because it makes no difference to the cash you pay for that player contract, and it makes no difference to how much you would sell that player for. So actually, it's the rules that are frankly wrong there, yeah. because if you can purport to be financially sustainable by just changing a non-cash item in your income statement, it suggests the rules are wrong. And that's, and that's I mean, I've had this conversation with UEFA, yeah. I've had it with many, many people. You know, what kills a football club is not its player amortisation. What kills a football club is when it runs out of cash. Yeah. Simple. It's quite interesting. And, and linked to that is my final one in the wider sort of football business question is, how do we fix the distribution of wealth? Most people I speak to across the EFL speak about the distribution of wealth, there's different sort of proposals, ideas floating about, there's talks, fair game mentioned, a 10% transfer levy, we just saw another record uh, Premier League transfer window introducing that, there's talks about sort of fixing the economics of the loan system because a lot of loan players from the Premier League come to, to EFL, I don't know, you have some from Everton yep. and Brighton, and then maybe you've developed that player, taking the risk, put them into the first team, they go and then to get sold for 30, 40 million and, and onwards. How do you kind of benefit from that? How, how do you, because it's quite a difficult question in terms of what you it, do in particular. It is, and you've raised a couple of issues in there yeah. that I think are quite relevant. One yeah. is, how do you fix the inequality? Yeah. Fundamentally, you can't. Yeah. Big clubs will be big, small clubs will be small. Yeah. And even if a small club goes through the ranks and into the Premier League, it will still be a comparatively small club compared to the giants of the Premier League. Yeah. You will never get away from that. Yeah. And in some ways, nor should you. You know, and you know, sport is that. That's how sport works. You look at Formula One. You've got two or three massive manufacturers, and you've got some smaller ones, and they kind of you know feed from the success of the others. So I'd be very afraid of. I think it's it's very easy to criticise the large clubs in the Premier League for being large clubs yeah. when they're just large clubs yeah. and that's just the way it is. 
Having said that, I do think distributions need to reflect, and I, it's something I mentioned earlier actually, which is about value. Mm. And the value of a football club is not just the revenue it generates, it, what it gives, it's what it gives to it, its community, and it's how it behaves. And one of the things that I said is if they're going to, and I've said this many times, if there's going to be redistribution across the league, yeah. then there's a danger that what you end up with is that redistributed money simply just hiking up player wages in the lower leagues. And that is no good for anyone. So the key for me is to put a distribution mechanism in place which rewards good behaviour. And that is whether... And look, I don't know what those measures are. I certainly can think of some, but, you know, I've not formulated my mind so clearly on that. But what you want to do is make sure that the money is distributed to clubs that actually behave well, whether it's sustainability, whether it's community outreach, whether it's building new stadium, building infrastructure, it, that's what that's to my mind how it should be. Yeah. How you do that, transfer levy, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. I'm not I'm not convinced. The one thing that you mentioned which is something that I think does need to be addressed yeah. is that very point of loan players. Yeah. That you know, lower league clubs will take and develop clubs, uh, sorry, players for Premier League clubs who then get, you know, 30 to 40 games a season, increase their value, and what do we get for it? Yes, we get a season of that player, and it's fantastic. We've got a few in our squad at the moment. You know, the one I will name is our goalkeeper, James yeah, Beadle, yeah. who already has just proved himself to be absolutely superb. But... You know, fundamentally, in five years' time, if James Beadle sold for a hundred million quid, we'll get nothing of that, and that feels wrong to me. Yeah. You know, look, if Brighton do well out of it, that's fantastic, well done, and well done for actually sending him out on loan. But it it just feels intuitively wrong that the clubs that actually are a significant part of that player's training program and that player value get nothing from it, it's a little bit hard to take. Yeah. And it's interesting because even if you look at a lot of the England team, a lot of the England players there, a lot of them had that period of being the EFL, developing, Completely. learning. David Beckham was on loan at Preston North End. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a tried and tested method of giving your younger players, yeah. you know, 30 to 40 games a season. And, you know, and look, don't get me wrong, we benefit from it. Yeah. But... I, I think there needs to be some some way of you know calculating a training compensation or some sort of solidarity kind of mechanism for that for that eventuality. Yeah, and and just because I can see it now in your office, then when my team came to came here in the FA Cup, just sort of talk to me about what that was like having them down. Obviously, the game was televised, and it was an absolutely amazing day. Yeah. Um, you know, I it was. It was a really proud day to have yeah. Arsenal coming down to our stadium to see the stadium full. Yeah. Um, you know, just to see so many people just really buzzing about that game. It was a brilliant occasion. And I think, you know, we showcased ourselves incredibly well on that day. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah we, we lost. We expected to lose. Yeah. But, you know, we, we kept you at bay for 63 minutes, yeah, I think it was. Quite, it was quite a long period of time. So, <laughs> we didn't do bad. Difficult to break down, yeah, I remember, yeah. Did you prepare some answers for the two truths, one life? Not... I did, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> take, take me away with your... Uh... 
With your three statements, Tim. So, statement number one. Yeah. I was in the boardroom at Manchester United and I accidentally knocked over a bottle of Sir Alex Ferguson's wine and smashed it on the floor and I found out later it was a £500 bottle of red wine. Wow. Second, I was kept on the tarmac at Malpensa Airport in Milan for two hours whilst one of our players had to go back to the training ground to pick up his passport that he'd forgotten. And three, an unnamed Man United player accidentally held onto my Mont Blanc pen while I was sitting next to him in his hotel whilst he signed his contract. Um, I'm going to say, do you know what it is? I know they're hot on players remembering their passports, but I don't know. I think that is a player. That is a player. Would, would you all wait for a player? I know Sir Alex likes his wine as well. He would have, he would have, been, he would have been furious. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go with the, the first one. First and third one are true, and the middle one is a lie. <laughs> wrong! Oh, wrong. <laughs> so the first one, the wine, that is a lie. That is a lie, okay. <laughs> the being held on the tarmac at Malpensa Airport while a player went to have to go to get his passport from wow. a trainer, that is absolutely true. We were Good. flying to England... Uh, for it was probably a pre-season friendly yeah. and I think it may have been the pre-season friendly at the new Spurs stadium ah. and because typically when our players travelled around Europe they didn't need passports yeah. but they do when you go to England because we're not Schengen so we had to uh, so they had to Scoot way over to the training ground, which was probably about 45 minutes drive away from the airport, yeah. and straight back before the player could be boarded. Wow. And it was, yeah, and the unnamed Man United player did accidentally hold on to my Mont Blanc pen after he signed his contract, and I did actually have to ask for it back. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I got you there. Yeah, because you know, like, I just thought to myself, like, maybe someone would stay behind with him and get the next one, and then you just go, all of you... No, it was chartered plane, so there was, we couldn't go on another flight. Wow. I know, going wow. into Stansted, I think we were. And the last question we ask all the guests is, what the footy needs to change or happen within your space? Uh, I want... Smaller, lower league football clubs to have a greater access to sustainable, relatively inexpensive financing. That is the biggest challenge, I think, that faces League One, League Two and possibly even championship football clubs. It's really easy for a very large Premier League club to raise money whenever they want. Yeah. You know, I, I can say that from my own experience at both Man United and Inter. It's much, much harder for a smaller football club to raise money. So a... An, a a way of them being able to sustainably raise finance relatively cheaply is absolutely the way forward. Is that in terms of like going to banks and, and loan we, Whoever it is, yeah. whether it's banks, whether it's private equity, whether it's even through you know the Premier League or the Football League, some form of ability to generate and raise finance yeah. that is cost-effective and doesn't effectively mean that the owners lose their shirts and have to go pledge shares and goodness knows what. Something that actually works, and I think we're a long way off that, which I think is a shame. No, Tim, absolute pleasure. Good to, good to finally do this in person. It's and, been uh, brilliant, Paul. No, thank, thank you very you. much. Cheers, thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you loved it. And if you did, give the pod a follow and a five-star review and tell a friend to tell a friend. 
Let's go. What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school. Now it's putting us. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that. But then also, they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. So when in the league, let's just win this to appease the fans.